Welcome to Halt the Harm podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Clover. On today's episode, I'm talking with Dante Swinton, the coordinator for the Divert Baltimore program. And in this conversation, we talk about organizing and advocating for alternatives to developing a waste incinerator that would cause a public health crisis in Baltimore. By taking leadership and design thinking approach, Dante is able to show that diverting the waste from incineration has social, environmental, and economic benefits. Dante's had an interest in environmental protection for 20 years, has worked with Energy Justice Network since summer 2015, has run for state and local office to raise waste, recycling, energy, transit, and domestic violence issues, and he has bachelor's in environmental studies from Winthrop University and a master's in nonprofit management and social entrepreneurship from the University of Baltimore. Dante is the Divert Baltimore Program Coordinator environmental justice researcher and organizer with Clean Air Baltimore. I enjoyed this conversation because Dante really advocates for thinking outside the box, instead of just focusing on what we're against. He says that it's important to build a solution, because with a strong solution we can be effective in our efforts at really making a difference and shifting the culture. And without further ado, let's jump right into the interview with Dante. Dante Swinton, welcome, welcome to Health to Harm podcast. Really glad to have you here today. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, we at Energy Justice are just like, hey, you know, we want to we provide as many resources as possible to uh, assist other organizations in any way we can, whether that be through mapping or uh, grassroots assistance or, or legal counseling, even as uh, our executive director is a practicing lawyer in, in uh, Pennsylvania. So. Um, yeah, we, uh, we we hope to to do as much as we can and, and make an impact over the next few years. That's cool. Well, just to start, I'd love to hear about if, you know, something, well, well, okay, one of the, one of the goals on your website, energyjustice.net, is to enable community activists to defeat polluting industries. Uh, can you mm-hmm. just... Let's just get started by talking about, you know, talking about a situation where where it worked, where you were able to use uh, some of these tools and the organizing work that you do to defeat a polluting industry. Uh, sure. So when I started with Energy Justice Network, uh, there was a proposed incinerator to be built here in, uh, or I guess there in Baltimore. Um, that would have been the largest trash incinerator in the country, burning over 4,000 tons of uh, waste per day. Um, and so when I, I joined up uh, with the organization as an organizer, uh, I mostly spent that first bit of time learning a bit more about incineration and then proceeding to be present at rallies and meetings and uh, things of that nature that were related to the incinerator. Uh, so we kind of played a supporting role um, for that main fight. Unfortunately, that uh, plan was canceled, which is great. Um, but now, uh, and our main focus has been from the start, the existing incinerator in Baltimore, uh, which is the largest polluter in the city. Um, and for the last two years, we've been pushing uh, government officials and uh, uh, Department of Public Works, things like that, to recognize that it's time to move on from this uh, archaic uh, facility as a primary source of waste disposal. And so uh, we've been doing not only those meetings with the government officials, but also 
meeting with uh, neighborhood associations, uh, presenting at uh, popular uh, socialist bookstores, um, and uh, taking students at the universities in Baltimore City on toxic tours uh, to let them know what's going on in their uh, home city. Um, yeah, yeah. Because uh, the sooner, yeah, I think we do that, the better. So, I mean, that's amazing that you were able to stop one of the largest, you know, proposed project that would have been the largest incinerator um, in the country, you know, from being built in Baltimore. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, the, I, mm-hmm. I wish that we had a bigger role in that, but I, I definitely am glad to see that we, we were at least present in that uh, effort. So, yeah. <laughs> Oh right, right. Yeah, I'll you didn't. Give, you didn't. It wasn't Energy Justice Network that stopped it. It was. Uh, yeah, that was. You were able. Yeah, to, that was like United Workers. Yeah, and Free Your Voice. We were. We were supporting role in that one. <laughs> that's that's awesome. And so, mm-hmm. I imagine that part of the challenge with, you know, opposing an existing piece of infrastructure, is that it's existing. So. You know, people mm-hmm. have sort of accepted that it's there and see it maybe as a necessary part of life. You know, how does that mm-hmm. how does that come up? Uh, yeah, so I think there's been a bit of a disconnect uh, for the majority of the time, um, at least in my opinion, when it comes to the incinerator. I mean, for one, it's a, it's a facility with a large white smokestack that says Baltimore on the side. And so when people come in, to the city from the south and D.C. and everything, uh, it looks kind of like a little landmark. And they're like, hey, welcome to Baltimore. I was like, oh, that's me. And so, like, it's it's uh, seemingly um, uh, a kind uh, facility to uh, the community. But um, it happens to be the largest polluter in the city. And when you don't see black smoke coming out of it, which is required by Maryland law that you don't have uh, visible emissions coming from incinerators, people don't make that connection that it's a harmful facility. And so I've had a lot of, uh, like, oh, I'm finding this incinerator. And it's like, what, where's the incinerator? It's like, you know, that smokestack with Baltimore inside. Like, that's an incinerator? Like, that's that's a common occurrence uh, with the conversations that we've had over the last couple of years, uh, even with city council folk um, who uh, just got into office or, or, or just weren't making that connection beforehand. Um, but once we put our trash into these bins, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind for a lot of people. Totally. And we're hoping to change that. Yeah, I mean, it really is out of sight, out of mind. And it kind of facilitates the, I mean, it, it just, it makes it easy to throw things away. It makes it mm-hmm. easy for it to not be a priority. And it's, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I mean, I know that if I don't design my own space, like my own physical space effectively, then mm-hmm. I will create clutter. Mm-hmm. You know, I will create, um, mm-hmm. you know, bottlenecks and, and stuff like that. And so, right. yeah, I mean, just thinking about that on a mass scale, you know, the whole city, and you're you're talking about a design decision around how trash is handled has mm-hmm. a huge impact. You know, one decision can mean the difference between, you know, thousands of tons of toxic emissions, you know, just being pumped into the atmosphere that everybody breathes. Exactly. Absolutely. And, yeah. I mean, I know that part of what you're doing is working on alternatives, too, like proposing solutions. You're Mm -hmm. not just saying, 
you know, hey, we're mm-hmm. getting rid of this. We want to get rid of this thing. So what are the, some of those, right. you know, what are some of the ways that you're encouraging and what are the models that you're proposing? Sure, sure. So uh, one of the things that we like to, to put out there is that, for one, the incinerator has been around for over 30 years. It's, uh, it's a, uh, essentially a dinosaur, and the state has had to bend over backwards to try to, like, adjust and grandfather it's, uh, the facility in because it has a difficulty keeping up with modern technology. So that's one issue. Um, but also... There are uh, four and a half years left on the existing contract that the city has with that facility. And so we find that this is the perfect time to be proposing uh, these solutions um, to a better Baltimore. And uh, like you said, it's important that if you have something you're saying no to, there has to be something you say yes to. And so one of the things that we are advocating for is the the building of a MRF or a material recovery facility uh, in Baltimore, uh, particularly in Westport, where the incinerator is located, um, to kind of you know counter the existence of that facility being there, uh, which not only would create uh, construction jobs but also the operation jobs as well, um, and allow us to increase our current recycling diversion rate and sell off any uh, recycled materials. Right now, we uh, send our recycled materials to a, a MRF outside of the city. Uh, but if we were able to build one within the city, uh, all the better then. Uh, and so one of the things that we're doing in, uh, with that fight is sending uh, or advocating the city to send a proposal to the closed loop fund slash closed loop partners, uh, which is an uh, entity that provides zero interest loans to cities who want to build uh, these types of sustainable facilities instead of incinerators or in air landfills and things of that nature. And uh, so we're hoping that uh, this is one angle of it, but uh, we're hoping that the city will uh, engage uh, closely partners to build these facilities. Um, because just in June the 5th, 5th yeah, uh, there was a zero waste resolution passed by the city. And so it's very um, gung-ho about moving in a zero waste direction. Uh, the pace at which we want to move it, obviously it may differ between city uh, government and ourselves and the Energy Justice Network, but uh, it's there. People are realizing we need to move on from Willow Greater and go in an entirely different direction uh, from archaic waste policies. So um, we, that's one of the things that we'd hope to do. We also would want not only to build that uh, MRF, but also uh, gain funding for composting facilities. Currently, the city doesn't have any uh, municipal-based composting it used to, um, but then uh, that got shut down, sadly. So um, we're hoping to to advocate for that as well. Um, since most of our waste is recyclable, we feel like if we can enhance these recycling rates uh, through the pilot project, which I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, as well as building these facilities, uh, we'll be able to, to do multiple things with uh, the efforts we're making, whether that be job creation uh, and social mobility, uh, cleaner air, and, and just healthier and more sustainable ways of dealing with uh, the waste that we produce. Nice. So when you're proposing these things, are you also looking at examples of you know where these types of solutions exist, you know where they're solving these problems? Sure. And is, sure. is that, yeah. yeah, I mean, could you share some of those examples and how, how you might use those as leverage when you're talking to local uh, policymakers? 
Totally. So uh, one of the things that we are, we, we've advocated for a number of things, but um, one of the things we really pushed, obviously, is, is to create these MRFs and, and to go in a direction of, say, a pay-as-you-throw system down the road. Uh, that's not immediate because we need to enhance our recycling rates first, but uh, eventually we'd like to do that. And so originally, when we first started doing this work against Willibrator, uh, the name of the incinerator, um, there was a lot of pushback. It was just like, oh, you know, Baltimore is different. We can't do this. We'll, we'll look to San Francisco, uh, obviously, with their 70% plus diversion rate. And so you had this response of, oh, Baltimore is different. And this is, a, this is a, an area that wouldn't necessarily do that. And when I heard that, it would seem very classist and very racist about uh, uh, the people in Baltimore. And uh, that, con- that kind of uh, read between the lines implicit uh, uh, race and uh, class statements uh, happened a good bit with other government officials. And so um, that annoyed me, obviously. <laughs> and uh, so what I did was I looked around. It's like, you know, what other cities that look like Baltimore got a majority communities or cities of color um, that are going in a green direction. And for one, Atlanta uh, certainly has tried to enhance its recycling capacity, opening various uh, locales. Uh, around the city, but in terms of like material recovery facilities, Memphis is actually a really good example. Uh, toward Baltimore, it's about the same uh, demographic makeup. It's a little larger than Baltimore. They have a MRF. They're opening uh, uh, various costs for trash bins depending on size. So they're doing a lot of these things that are encouraging people to divert their waste. Uh, in a majority community of color, in a community that that has a lot of economic downturn, um, and 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 it's working. Uh, so Baltimore doesn't really have, uh, at least its government doesn't have an excuse not to look to these other cities and consider opening uh, a MRF or or opening just uh, facilities that are much more green than a trash incinerator, which is the worst way to handle uh, your waste. So. Um, also, one of the other things that people tend to, to bring us like, oh, well, where is the trash going to go if we stop, close it like tomorrow? And the thing is, we do also have a landfill in uh, Baltimore City. Both of them actually were built around the same time uh, to help each other uh, once the toxic ash comes from the incinerator, it gets trucked over to the landfill uh, in another uh, uh, low-income community um, in Baltimore City. And uh, and so uh, so right now, because uh, the amount of the, the over half the weight that goes to that landfill every year is ash from the incinerator. Um, and so the city decided to buy an old industrial landfill next to that existing one. And now uh, they're going to build between the two to make it a super landfill uh, and, and the best name ever. It's called Quarantine Road. And uh, uh, and so that way we can extend capacity from 2026 uh, up to 2052 with this new full super landfill. And uh, while we transition away from using the incinerator, uh, there is space for additional non-recyclable material at this landfill, but that would only be temporary until we actually start installing extended producer responsibility policies as well. Um, and so... Yeah, so so uh, the, the, I know I went on a bit for that, but like to That's look at San Francisco, fun. to look at Memphis, to look at cities that have these uh, these things already rolling. Um, Baltimore has examples out there uh, that it could look to, 
and and, and proceed uh, to, to be similar, if not entirely different. And the type of pilot project and proposal I uh, will probably get to on Stiver at Baltimore is a little different than anything other city has done. And I think that perhaps that difference is going to benefit Baltimore the best. So, yeah. <laughs> so Environmental Justice Network, you know, it's got the word environmental justice in it. So it's already. Oh, well, it's, it's, it's energy. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm no, so no lucky. I get... we, yeah, we... <laughs> this, this, this happens all the time, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does. Like we, we, we don't want to like make ourselves like, like super awesome. Like we are the environmental justice. Network. <laughs> right. Right. I guess that would be... uh, but, but no worries. <laughs> well, environmental justice is, you know, has has a rich history, mm-hmm. and you mentioned earlier about the the fight in Baltimore. So there's history there already with environmental justice, and um, mm-hmm. and so energy justice network, energy justice is, you know, is that a a term that's sort of built around that framework of environmental justice, or is it different? Yeah. I- I would I would say so. I mean, we we believe in focusing our work on uh, polluting industry, polluting energy industries and waste technologies. So not only are we concerned about the trash incinerator uh, in Baltimore, but uh, we also are not advocates for nuclear energy or, or coal uh, plants and what have you. But per unit rate, uh, per unit of energy created, incinerators actually produce more nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, mercury and uh, dioxin than coal plants do. And so uh, while we cover a lot of different entities, I would say that incineration is the one that we have a a high priority on fighting and have been fighting. My boss has been uh, in this work against uh, incineration for the last 25, 26 years or what have you. Um, And so I just joined the fight uh, two years ago, but like I hadn't really made that connection until getting with Energy Justice Network that, yeah, we have issues to deal with uh, uh, our waste. And the solution that had been proposed was to, instead of landfilling it, let's burn it. Um, and obviously that's not the greatest idea that we've ever created. So um, <laughs> I, I would say that, uh, uh, so that, that energy justice uh, has an environmental, uh, is, is based in envi- grassroots environmental justice work um, hoping to build up communities uh, against these facilities and to, to educate about them because again there's still a lot of disconnect between where our trash goes once it get, once it gets put into the green bins um, in Baltimore and just as a side note uh, last year the city rolled out uh, an 8.5 million dollar project to give everyone a, a large 65 gallon green trash can because now at that time, some houses didn't have any trash cans. They put their uh, bags on the sides, what have you, or, or an old flimsy bins. Uh, but the, so the argument was that it would diminish the rat problem. Uh, but at the same time, the city's trying to uh, promote sustainability and uh, en- enhance recycling. But if you give people these large trash bins uh, and no recycling bins for free, um, you're not actually promoting sustainability so it's like you're talking out both sides of your mouth and the city yeah. has basically has been doing that the last year plus so uh that seems so like we a... are hoping mm-hmm. yeah in, exactly so we're we're hoping to, to to shift that and so by making the connection between energy and environmental justice 
especially from a waste perspective, uh, we believe that that'll uh, allow us to make a deeper connection uh, with environmental justice in Baltimore City and, and be able to, to, to uh, uh, energize uh, grassroots uh, and, and, and uh, entities to, to fight against it. Mm-hmm. Wow, that that's interesting. I mean, about the trash bins, because at, at my job, I remember they started using blue trash bags. And that was the same mm-hmm. color as the recycling bins. And so all of a sudden, everybody's <laughs> throwing the recycling in the trash. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just, wow. sometimes these things are really subtle. And it just makes a big difference. I I know I'm kind of like sticking to that because it's my personal, because it's my personal interest. I'm like, Ooh, small, you know, Mm -hmm. design changes make such a huge difference. Um, Mm -hmm. but I really, I really see it. I really see it. Really notice it. We need to think about those things. Right. Like you said, exactly. So you got involved with energy justice network two years ago. What was it like for Mm -hmm. you? you know, stepping into your role there, what were you doing before that? And sort of how did you, how did you get involved? Oh yeah. Great question. So at that point, um, I had just finished some time with, uh, this organization called the parks and people foundation, um, in Baltimore city and a great organization, uh, and mul- for multiple reasons. Um, uh, among them, uh, the fact that they do help uh, folks who may have a criminal record uh, get jobs, um, whether that be uh, breaking concrete to, to plant trees and uh, or, or uh, delivering various uh, items from one place to another, what have you, they make sure that, that folks that, that uh, need a second chance actually do get it with a, with a, a, a good paying wage. Um, and so that's certainly a credit to them. But we also go about trying to re-tree uh, a lot of Baltimore. Um, and one of the things I did with them was took a, a team of high schoolers and we watered the trees that had been planted the year before. So we had about 400 trees. We'd water every every week, three or four times, I suppose. And I uh, was doing that. I was the closest to anything that had anything to do with my degree at that, at that time in environmental studies that I had done since undergrad. Um, so it was a step in the right direction. Um, but, uh, up until then I hadn't really had the opportunity to, to utilize my skills, um, in the way that I wanted to, which is to, to develop policy and to motivate, uh, folks uh, for change and, and, and things of that nature. And so, um, when I, uh, interviewed for, uh, for Energy Justice Network, um, I met my, uh, my boss, Mike, before, uh, years ago, uh, prior at a power shift conference, uh, cause I knew a friend of mine, but, um, that was about it. And so when, so we connected again and he asked me like, Oh, you know, what, uh, what do you bring to the table? And I'm just like, you know what? I'm, I, and I'm going to be straightforward with you. I was just like, I'm awesome, man. Like, and like, I, I've been <laughs> sitting here for like the last like five years wanting to like find a job that <laughs> can like actually be worthwhile and for my skill set and not in retail or, or food mm-hmm. service or anything like that, like to, to, to do the political and, 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 and environmental justice based type of stuff. Uh, cause my, uh, bachelor's was in environmental studies. And then I, at the yeah. time I was still working on my 
uh, master's in nonprofit management. So like this was like the job that I thought nice. would be really good for me to, 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 to get there. And so I kept bugging him and bugging him, letting him know that I was still awesome and I wanted this job really badly. <laughs> and, uh, and then, uh, I got that, um, uh, at, uh, August, uh, last or not last year, August of 2015. So almost exactly two years. Nice. And, um, and so, uh, I spent a lot of time just kind of learning uh, the ins and outs of incineration, kind of get all the facts straight. And, um, yeah. And, and like I said, getting into this job, I had like, I recycled before, but having learned how things ha- were handled in Baltimore city with the incinerator, with the landfill, um, and all the ash that comes from, uh, the incinerator to that landfill, uh, just motivated me even more to, uh, to, to increase not only my diversion rate, but everyone else's, uh, especially for the betterment of people's health. Um, and then the financial benefit that would, the city would uh, experience if it actually moved away from incineration as well. So. Uh-huh. Well, I definitely want to talk about the things that you've brought to and the Energy Justice Network, like the uh, diversion, uh, divert Baltimore. And um, mm-hmm. but first, I, you know, I want to stick with your story for just a minute because you mentioned that okay. you, you did environmental studies. And uh, – I mm-hmm. did. I did environmental studies as well. So um, awesome. we have that in common, which is pretty cool. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, totally. And I, yeah, and I also met Mike at a conference <laughs> back uh, <laughs> when I was in college. So, so I think that's that's pretty funny to relate to that a little yeah. bit. But I mean, <laughs> I'm always curious, like, why people get involved with environmental studies because it's different than your sort of standard, you know, environmental science type stuff, like. A, Environmental studies right. is a little bit more about, you know, at least when I've explained it to people, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've always said, you know, it's more mm-hmm. about, you know, culture and the environment and the dynamics mm-hmm. of environment, at, you know, as it sort of exists in our society. You know, it's almost yeah. like sociology. It's almost like going to school for sociology. Right. Absolutely. So, like, what I, was, know, I would totally agree with that. When did, you, when did you realize that you cared about that, that you were interested in, in understanding, deepening sure. those dynamics? Yeah. So I, um, I, I definitely, uh, I think it was maybe in fifth grade or so where I started seeing like, uh, discovery channel shows about climate change. And so this is, this is like 1998, 99 type of stuff. So, um, I started to get a little bit concerned about it. Like, I mean, I didn't understand all the detail, obviously, but like, it just seemed like, okay, you know, global warming, this is a bit of a concern. Um, and so just kind of fast forward from there, like I'd, I'd be more and more aware of, of, uh, various droughts and stuff like that, uh, going into to college. And originally I went to college to be a high school Spanish teacher, which is a bit different, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, I uh, I realized by toward, at the end of sophomore year that you know I mean I I uh, I was taking the, like early 20th century Spanish literature and I was not doing very well so I decided to move from that and uh, go to something that uh, I was pretty passionate about and and I had been learning more about uh, environmental justice at that point and climate change and. Uh, and obviously with the president uh, being elected uh, or, or the Pope, well, I guess I jumped into it just before the president got uh, President Obama was elected the first time. So um, I joined a group 
in uh, my junior year uh, that was focused on environmental justice in South Carolina and with a primary focus on coal plants. And I had realized until I got into that group uh, that there had been so much like environmental uh, injustices regarding the siting of coal plants in South Carolina. I believe it's uh, if you're an African-American, you're three times more likely to live within 25 miles of a coal plant uh, in South Carolina. And which is that uh, general area where uh, you would experience the most effects from its pollution. And so, um, so that started to bug me. And from there, I just kind of kept learning more and more. And we were fighting this coal plant that was being proposed in uh, a community of color in uh, the Midlands of South Carolina. And they were going to raise the rates of folks on the coast uh, who have to have a little bit more money. Um, but not tell them why they were raising the rates. They were saying, oh, it's the market, this, that, and the other, but in actuality, it was to fund the coal plant. Uh, and so, um, right. right. Uh, so, yeah, so basically, as like that, uh, certainly pissed me off. And eventually, they uh, did cancel that plan, um, which was awesome. Uh, so we, we had a victory there. But just the, the, the fact that, um, there were people on the environmental committee in the state legislature who didn't realize these disparate impacts uh, all of coal plants on African-American communities uh, just really irked me. And so um, so I, 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 that definitely motivated me to get go into this direction. But like you said, environmental studies is much more interdisciplinary. It's about that, uh, that uh, social connection to the environment uh, and how we choose to treat it for ourselves and for our, our children and children's children um, and whether or not what we're doing is okay or acceptable or tolerable or whatever. Um, and, and obviously most of what we do isn't. So we have to make that connection because if we don't, then we're not going to be able to, to, to really uh, facilitate a greater level of learning on, on the importance of, of protecting the environment like we're doing with Energy Justice Network and any other organization that went to the E3C conference that we met at in Texas. Yeah. Um, and so, so environmental studies is, 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 is a critical piece. We've got to be able to talk not only the facts, but also the people. Um, and, and, and the more we do that, the better we'll be. (laughs) And actually, I really want to get into this, uh, talk here about Divert Baltimore now, because, and as you tell us about it, I guess I'm really wondering, like, what are the conversations like when you're talking with people about the program? So when I joined Energy Justice Network, um, basically, uh, I rolled in, uh, was given the information on incineration and then I started having, uh, scheduling meetings with the Department of Public Works and city council folk just saying, hey, shut this shut this incinerator down. It's bad. It sucks, whatever. Let's move on. Uh, it's a terrible thing. And like to some extent, people agreed with that. But it was uh, the response at that point was more like, oh, well, this is what we have. And, you know, it would be nice to move on from it. We don't think it's the greatest thing in the world, but we feel like we should do like an all of the above approach. And uh, and that right. was the word uh, from the director of DPW, and so that obviously was not very uh, uh, good to hear um, at that time. And so, um, and we even got to a point where I was in a conversation uh, with uh, DPW members and was talking about the ash from uh, the incinerator and how it was toxic. 
And so the head of the solid waste department at that time, as well as their legal counsel, challenged me on whether that ash was toxic. And I uh, was asking, like, oh, have you tested it? Like, how can you say the ash is toxic? They, they put their pollution controls um, and, and this, that, and the other. Like, there's no way that, that like, we're, we're putting our people in harm's way when we uh, put that ash in the landfill. Now, uh, this was a very uh, frustrating argument. I was just going to say that sounds that. really frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> right. But... Uh, what I later did in a, in, a, in a meeting with the Sustainability Commission that I presented at uh, on Willibrator um, was talk about how uh, at the international level, incinerator ash is declared hazardous waste. So if other countries are using the same types of material that we are for our uh, products and then proceeding to uh, and not to recycle them and then burn them, uh, and, and then they're producing the same type of pollutants and ash that we would. And, and so if the entire rest of the world considers it as a toxic waste, then why aren't we doing it? And so uh, just to get slightly wonky. Um, also, like, why do we, uh, there was a, why do people have to prove <laughs> that it's toxic? Like, why don't they have to prove that it's safe? Right, right, exactly, exactly. Right. So, so one of the things I, I did in that presentation, uh, and I think this was November of last year, um, uh, there was a Supreme Court case in the 90s, I believe it was 1994, and it stated that uh, incinerator ash uh, should be considered as hazardous waste and should be dealt as a hazardous waste rather than in, in regular municipal landfills. Um, because at that time, the EPA had been testing for what was in the ash from these incinerators. Um, so arsenic and mercury, all that other good stuff, uh, and good being sarcasm. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and so they, um, so, what, so after that Supreme Court ruling, the EPA decided to say, okay, well, if that's the case, then what we'll do is instead of testing for what's in the ash, we'll test for what comes out of it when we put it under certain controlled conditions. And if it passes these tests, then we don't, and then, then municipalities don't have to, uh, to spend the extra money that it would cost to put this waste in a hazardous landfill. Instead, they could just dump it in their municipal landfills like it's just regular old waste. And that's been the way that the EPA has handled toxic ash from incinerators since then. And, and I, I always want to reiterate that it is, in fact, toxic ash because if you don't, if you have pollution controls installed and you burn the trash when you don't have it go into the air those pollutants come back down into the ash like that they don't they don't disappear <laughs> they they're either in the air or in the ash and so anytime someone says that it's not toxic then you should just laugh in the face um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but my 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 point is that uh so w it was difficult having to face um people uh, in, in city government that felt that way about the incinerator at that time and were very reluctant to, to, uh, to work with us. And so we went back and uh, started thinking about how we could get to uh, a different solution uh, or, or get to the, uh, to, to the outcome that we want in a different manner. Um, and so what we did uh, is that I worked out uh, Divert Baltimore. And so uh, what essentially we would do is give every 
uh, household a bin, a recycling bin for free, similar to the way that they rolled out the trash bins. Uh, our recycling bins, the biggest ones are about a third of the size of the trash bins, but we have to start somewhere. Um, and so by giving these uh, communities these particular bins or what have you, we're, we're not only going to just give them the bins, we're going to provide education outreach on the health connections between throwing your trash in the green bin or diverting uh, most of it into the yellow bin. Um, and, and so it would be a, a, a pieces of or multiple pieces there. Um, but the goal is that if a given community, after getting, the, get, uh, getting these bins, is able to reach a certain diversion rate within their pickup route um, by the end of either the fiscal year or calendar year, then uh, and they would break the city even on providing uh, those bins for free compared to the tipping fee that the city would have spent to burn the trash that they didn't divert. Um, and so, say, for right now, the we have to spend $52 a ton for every, uh, for every ton of trash that the city burns right now. Um, so if we, if we gave one community, particularly the host community, uh, bins for free and they did this project, they'd have to recycle about 30% of their waste to break the city even on providing those bins for free. Um, but if they surpass that amount, then there's a surplus that's created. And 70% of that surplus money, which is just money that would have been used to burn trash, instead goes back to the community. And they, with their leaders and their legislator, can decide where that money goes, whether that's for building community gardens, whether that's for clearing out a vacant uh, or abandoned homes for more green space, whether that's better uh, uh, street lighting, uh, ground-facing street lighting, what have you. They get to decide where that money goes. Uh, and then another 10% would go to uh, support for what we call block captains, and they would be the, the, the members of the community that would go around, remind people to get their uh, recycling out, their trash out on certain days, um, and to weigh their material to see how much each particular house is diverting um, from their uh, general production. Um, another 10% would go, and I can go more in depth about them later, but um, another 10% would go to a solid waste enterprise fund, uh, which uh, is a type of uh, uh, pot of money that some cities and municipalities use to execute all their solid waste expenses. Um, and when you have one of those, you don't have to include your solid waste expenses in your tax base. And so you can remove that from your property taxes, which I'm sure will make people with a little bit more money happy. And then last but not least, there's another 10% that we would allocate to an education fund. Right now, the city of Baltimore uh, public school uh, system has a hundred and twenty six million or so dollar uh, deficit, and we feel like if we can make the connection not only in terms of health uh, of, of recycling uh, to, or, or the importance of recycling because of your health, uh, we think that people will be even more motivated to recycle when they know that additional money can go to the public schools that their children are attending and so uh, so that's the, the ultimate goal for Divert Baltimore uh, in a nutshell. Um, but yeah. right now what we're doing is we're doing – yeah. Yeah, I mean you're showing them <laughs> – Yeah, go ahead. You're showing them that, that they're going to mm -hmm. save money, which mm -hmm. which seems like you're, <laughs> you're speaking their language. You're saying, you know, look, look you're actually <laughs> going to save money. And then you're also weaving mm -hmm. in the, you know, the, the social justice component of – you know, actually looking at the different communities that are impacted and 
you know, thinking about how those savings could then be allocated in a way that allows people to make decisions about themselves and about their, exactly. their own communities. And so then they, exactly. and it also seems like you've really thought this through in a way so that the small choices of diverting uh, recyclables and trash, I guess it's diverting mm-hmm. trash, right? Diverting trash into recyclables. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that those small mm-hmm. choices are attached to this bigger idea. I mean, I think one of the things that seems to be, well, it's true for me, and I think it's true in my building. I already told you that we are throwing mm-hmm. our recycling in the blue trash bins. But mm-hmm. <laughs> is that recycling feels kind of pointless. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, recycling. We've been hearing about this since, you know, since we were kids. Recycle, recycle, recycle. And mm-hmm. I know it's not like that everywhere, but... You know, I live in in upstate New York and we've been I've been hearing about it since I was a Mm -hmm. kid. And there's this sort of disillusionment with it. Like it doesn't mean anything like I don't even know. Like it's still it's still the problem is still I don't know where this is going. It's uh, out of sight, out of mind. Right. It's just a different kind of one. Exactly. And so it also seems like Mm -hmm. you're solving that in a way because you're actually showing like here's the impact. Like you divert this garbage. It's not getting burned. It's not affecting us in this negative way. You know the ash isn't going into mm-hmm. the landfill, um, but there's mm-hmm. also this this potential kickback that we get to decide how to spend this money. Mm-hmm. Exactly, it's a lot of strategic right. thought so, went into it. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, it's like there, but like I said, it it was very. Well, I appreciate that. It was it was very difficult for me to just have these people rebuff. Uh, an effort to better the the community. I mean, we uh, there was a meeting we had with the Department of Public Works, and we said, you know, um, it's important that the city not only recognizes that it it, it thought well was uh, it was a good decision at the time to to have Willibrader come along in the in the mid '80s, um, but now we have to recognize this is a different time, and that that wasn't the best idea, and that the city should say, hey we want you to go in this different direction because X, Y, Z. Um, and that includes like that poor health is, is, outcomes can come from this, uh, this thing. And so uh, for this incinerator. And so one of the folks in DPW said to me, uh, well, we're never uh, going to be, the city's never going to say that uh, it poisoned its people. Uh, and, uh, and so I said, okay, well, we'll do it for you. But <laughs> um the but the 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 point though is like even if you don't necessarily outright say that explicitly as a city government, you can be the proactive people in changing the way that this policy uh, or that that we we do with our waste in the city. And just to make another point on how we're trying to really push the idea of building these MRFs and the composting facilities, um, Baltimore City on the whole uh, has about uh, twenty eight percent or so of its population has a bachelor's degree or higher, which is a relatively average uh, uh, percentage uh, across the country, Um, but lower than communities like Seattle and I believe San Francisco and stuff. Um, But when you go into Westport, uh, which is where the incinerator is, uh, that number drops down to 9%. Uh, so only 9% of the people that are 25% or older, or 25 years or older, um, happen to have a bachelor's degree already, uh, and and they're for already having an, an extra uh, 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 step uh, ahead of other folks to to gain 
uh, service jobs or what have you um, in Baltimore City. So when we're trying to build out Westport into a greener space, we're also trying to include job creation in a community that doesn't have uh, maybe the time or money to pursue higher ed right now. Um, they need jobs that don't require this extra, uh, extra uh, additional attainment and that uh, uh, can be, uh, at least hopefully, or not hopefully, that would be well-paying as well. And so when the city's trying to, to say, well, we're going to bring jobs here, or they're just they're waiting for uh, these big industries to come in. They're waiting for another Amazon. Amazon did move in in 2014, I want to say, and they did bring like a 1,000 jobs. So yay. But uh, we can't keep waiting for Amazons. We, we have to do something different. And one of the ways that we can go about doing that to provide jobs for, for folks who, who uh, don't, uh, don't have the time or money to, to go into this, uh, into to an associates or bachelors or what have, you, what have you program to acquire jobs uh, through waste diversion. Um, and, and there was a report that came out by uh, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. It's uh, an organization based in D.C. that we work with uh, called Pater in 2013. And what they discovered, uh, in, at least in Maryland, is that for every 10,000 tons of material, one job is created through incineration, two jobs through landfilling, but four jobs just through composting. And we don't even, uh, and, and they don't even really approach fully what that would look like if we're talking about plastic recycling or metals recycling, but the NRDC has done work in that range. And so you're starting to get towards the, the, the uh, dozens of jobs and, and the hundreds of jobs and so on and so forth. The more uh, recycle as the, the, the higher level recycling that you do. So if we create an economy that's based on this by default, you're going to create these jobs for uh, communities of color, for low-income communities that have not existed, have, that you have not managed to find a way to to lift them out of uh, the, uh, the levels of poverty that uh, the city has not really bothered to deal with and, and move forward from there. So so we're hoping that Divert Baltimore, on top of our clean air ordinance, which I can talk about too, um, uh, will really start pushing the city toward the idea of a zero-waste economy uh, not only for cleaner air, but for job opportunities that have been non-existent that will continue to be non-existent until we do something a little outside the box. And uh, and so I'm very proud of this uh, design program, or this program that I designed, because it is different. It is uh, motivating people in a different way to, to recycle um, than other communities uh, do currently. And I think that if we're able to, to, to really build this up, uh, and hopefully do a full-scale version of the pilot um, in the Westport community uh, next summer um, uh, through the city uh, in collaboration with them, then we'll really be able to bring this uh, to other communities down the road uh, across the country that are dealing with incineration. You'll be able to show that it's a model and, um, you know, something that can right. be replicated. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Awesome. A big part of our audience is people that are involved mm -hmm. with um, confronting the fracking industry and working to prevent the harms of fracking. So health effects, mm -hmm. environmental effects, uh, economic impacts, things like that. And, uh, you mm -hmm. know, but one reason that we don't have to stay entirely on that topic all the time is because mm -hmm. there are things about organizing 
and things about leadership and network building that hold true and that benefit all of us uh, that are involved with, with the anti-fracking work. So a question that I have in all this is how do you, mm-hmm. what have been some effective ways of mobilizing support for this project? Sure. So uh, definitely coordinating a lot of meetings uh, with council folks. Um, I, uh, they happen to know my face quite a bit in city hall. <laughs> um, I think it's been really important to, to remember that it's not only, um, about mobilizing, uh, the grassroots, which is great. Like they, they, it is it's important obviously to have communities, um, lifting up and, 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 and rising up, uh, against, uh, polluting industries. But it also comes up at a point where some of those communities have resigned to, the accept that this is uh what's going to happen to them and so in speaking with some of the residents in westport uh some of them feel like oh you know this uh, incinerator has been here for 33 years or so uh it's going to keep being here type of stuff and uh they may have uh, asthma bronchitis what have you but it it doesn't matter because it's been there it's going to stay there um but i think that's something that we as activists tend to leave on the table is making sure that we have uh, political capital and political strength to advocate for these policies as well. And so what I've been doing is is continually uh, meeting and presenting uh, all the data, um, health data, um, the financial data that we talked about earlier. Um, I mean, the city spends or budgets $10 million a year just to burn trash. A lot of people don't make that connection. So if we put that in people's faces to think that that is the amount of money that a city like Baltimore uh, is spending just to burn stuff, like that that tends to hit people a little harder. Um, and so we've been gaining uh, a lot of support. And so, so the city council members uh, overwhelmingly support the work that we're doing with Divert Baltimore. Uh, they overwhelmingly support the idea of the Clean Air Ordinance. Um, and so we're still working on that as well. Um, but yeah, we have tried to just tell the story of, of why we're there and the importance of going in this different direction. And we, we can see that the city has never made that connection with uh, with its uh, residents uh, about the importance of recycling regarding health. They've, they've just kind of said, hey, here's a trash bin. Uh, just make sure you put it in the trash can and, and then you're good to go um, kind of the stuff. So so I, I want to say that uh, uh, we've managed to not only do that, we've also taken uh, universities on toxic tours of South Baltimore um and so i'll usually lead those about two hours we go to the incinerator we go to the medical waste incinerator also in baltimore which happens to be the largest medical waste incinerator in the country and uh uh, we take them to various other locales that just kind of really emphasize the fact that these communities uh have dealt with heavy levels of of, uh pollution and environmental injustice for decades and that no one uh at least in terms of city government has really ever done anything to help them um, and that's, that's gotten people interested. They want to know more. They want to keep, uh, doing these tours with us, uh, to, to continue hammering in that there, that there are parts of Baltimore that people have forgotten about. Um, and that has gained, uh, garnered us, uh, support over the last couple of years. And so I think this year, perhaps, uh, it has really showed what our, our work has done because not only had the zero waste resolution been passed on June 5th, 
Um, but two weeks later, the city followed it up with a climate change resolution that, uh, that uh, my boss, Mike, and uh, a number of other organizations in the city helped uh, one of the councilmen uh, draft, um, and that got passed by the city as well. So uh, everyone is in that mindset uh, nowadays, or more so in that mindset than they were two years ago, and I'm really happy to see that. Uh, yeah. and, and so I, I know that we played a role in that, but uh, I know other organizations have definitely done uh, their fair share as well. Have you found anyone in the in the area who has, you know, years of experience, like maybe even decades of experience with organizing in the in the region that's been sort of like a mentor? Um, I wouldn't say that exactly. There now, there's a gentleman named Glenn Ross who did toxic tours of of the southeast uh, or east Baltimore, uh, because of, there was a lot of industry in that section of the community, and so we uh, would like to build a stronger relationship with him since we're doing other talking tours on the South Baltimore area. Um, because I think that he would be a really good, uh, mentor for, for myself and for Mike and for everyone, um, in Baltimore. But I would say that the way we've kind of approached it is to engage, uh, organizations like, uh, United workers and free your voice. Um, the, 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 uh, team group of, of United workers, um, to understand where how they built relationships when they were fighting against the proposed incinerator and in what relationships they've had uh, on the ground. And what we've helped to do is try to facilitate their relationships uh, with city government officials because uh, we met with the mayor uh, in, in February, the new mayor, and it was really difficult for a lot of people to get that, uh, that uh, meeting. But I managed to, to get one with her uh, at the end of that month and had the United Workers come in with us. And so um, we've been sharing pieces back and forth, whether it be the political allyship or, or the ground-based work um, between these organizations. So I, I suppose it's not necessarily one person, but we definitely have kind of looked to other gr- uh, groups in the area, and they've looked to us to uh, try to, uh, to to build that coalition. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and for talking about the, the pilot program, Divert Baltimore. Um, a little bit about Energy Justice Network and, um, and of course, your story, mm-hmm. too, how you got involved is really interesting. And, and I think I think people are going to get a lot of value from this episode for sure. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, anything else that you want to add that you want people to take away from this conversation before we wrap up? Sure, sure. Um, I guess my main takeaway or, or what I would love for people to take away is just that it's really important to think outside the box in terms of our solutions. I think we to we do get very idealistic and 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 just go with the anti whatever we are for that particular uh, community or our moment or what have you. Yeah. But it's important to to build the solution around maybe maybe a not personal idea that someone has or or an existing one uh, like Diver Baltimore or or other ones around the country. And, and putting those first, um, uh, if not beside the, the ultimate goal um, of, of closing certain facilities, because if we can do it that way, if we can show that not only are we being environmentally just from a health um, perspective, but also from a financial perspective for the city and for an economic perspective for the communities that are affected by these uh, facilities, then we'll be able to be much more effective in our uh, in, in our efforts to change and then have greater access to victories. Um, and I think that our ultimate Absolutely. goal is for Divert Baltimore to be citywide by 2020. 
Um, and that'll if, if it is citywide by 2020, which is our goal, uh, we'll have about two and a half years before the new contract needs to be signed by the, by the, uh, by the city uh, with the incinerator, but maybe they don't need to by that point. So um, we'll, we'll hope to, to keep Halt Harm Network updated on that, and hopefully we can find another uh, victory on multiple levels in Baltimore City. That's awesome. I love that you've got the long-term vision. I also love that you're talking about, you know, having those victories and that your strategy clearly involves a, a lot of different directions. You know, you're you're putting pressure on the incinerator to make mm-hmm. it be accountable to the standards that it promised, even though you know that those aren't perfect. But you're saying, hey, this is what's this mm-hmm. is what's out there. We want to know that you're complying. You're putting pressure on them. Mm-hmm. You're you know, educating people with toxic tours. You're showing people the impacts of the waste incineration. You know, for everyone who's listened this far to the end, uh, you're awesome. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, it's one of the things that we love <laughs> about the podcast format is that we get to just talk about stuff and, and go deep, uh, deeper than, than we can in like a 10-minute heavily edited radio spot, you know, so... Yeah, people mm-hmm. people are tuning in on their headphones, <laughs> like they're they're taking their dogs for walks, they're washing dishes, they're working at their job. I listened to a lot of uh, podcasts mm-hmm. when I was when I was working on farms <laughs> and stuff. So you know, there's people everywhere listening to this. So you know, we want to thank you for for being there and being involved. Yeah, absolutely. Cool, Dante. I look forward to catching up with you in the future and uh, seeing you around the network. Sounds like a plan, Ryan. I, I really enjoyed it. Have an awesome day. All right, you do the same. Bye-bye. See ya. This podcast is a project of HaltTheHarm.net, a website and resource that connects you with leaders, activists, researchers, economists, legal experts, and funders to protect your community from oil and gas industry. Halt the Harm is a network of leaders who are taking action, sharing resources and information, and supporting each other's campaigns. Find out more at HaltTheHarm.net. The soundtrack for Halt the Harm podcast is One of These Days by Elon Jewell from her album Sea of Tears. This is recorded, produced, and published by myself, Ryan Clover, in the studios of WRFI Watkins Glen, Ithaca.